This audio is from South Fellowship Church. For more information about South Fellowship, please visit southfellowship.org. When I was in college, I had the opportunity for uh, six weeks to go and to serve um, uh, at a YWAM camp down in Oaxaca, Mexico. One of the things that drew me to this camp was the fact that they were working, this camp was working with a bunch of unreached people groups up in the mountains of Oaxaca. And so I had the chance to go with a team of people into a people group called the Mixtecos. And um, they didn't, a lot of them didn't speak even Spanish. The younger kids spoke Spanish, but the adults, many of them um, uh, spoke their native language. I had the chance when I was there to travel with two missionaries. They came to our group and said, we uh, do a circuit every week. Would anybody like to come with us to these little villages that we're sharing the gospel with in the mountains? Well, I was a backpacking guide and I thought I had it together as far as the hiking part went. And so my hand was up in the air before I asked a lot of questions. And so um, I was with two um, Hispanic men and we were, I was with another guy from my group too. So four of us together. And as we started to walk, I said, so how long of a walk is it? Which is a great question to ask before you leave. And he says, 13 miles. And I thought, that's going to be a rough day. I have like a little Nalgene bottle of water. I have a granola bar, but I think we'll make it. And then he says, to the village. So I'm thinking 13 miles round trip or 13 miles round trip. That's a long day. 13 miles both ways, that's a marathon. (laughs) And so I had the chance as a sophomore in college to walk into a little village 13 miles away from where we left called Llano de Agua. And I can remember walking down the streets where nobody in the little town spoke even Spanish, and my Spanish was sketchy at best. And I saw little kids run out to the street and then back into their house quicker than they came, in, came out. And I asked our um, missionaries we were with, why did they leave so quick? And they said, you might be one of the first white people they've ever seen. And we continued to walk into this village and with a group of about 10 believers had the chance to gather in Llano de Agua to have a Bible study where the gospel was just starting to take root amongst these people. And that stuck with me for this reason. On that trip, I was reading the book of Acts and I thought, all right, Lord, maybe, just maybe I have a little bit of a better vision of what it looks like to live on mission as your people as your people. Because wouldn't you agree, it's easy as followers of Jesus, especially in, the North, in North America, to, to just to come to church and to sit in comfy chairs every Sunday where the temperature is pretty good and to uh, listen and to worship, but to really not let being a follower of Jesus go beyond our time on a Sunday morning. I think it's one of the traps that could be the greatest detriment to the church right now. And it's this, that that we have, in many ways, our vision has become what happens on a Sunday morning. That, for us, is church. What happens on a Sunday morning is church. Did you know that, that biblically, technically, you cannot go to church? You can't. It's not a place 
Church isn't a place you can go to. Now, it's become that, and we'll continue to use that terminology because sometimes it's helpful, but sometimes it really hurts us because we fail to recognize that church is not a place that we come to, but a people that we are. A people who circle around really two things. One, Jesus was dead and walked out of the grave. And two, we are called to be people that spread that unbelievably great news to all corners of the globe. And I think it's to our detriment that church has become a place rather than a movement because we as people innately long to be part of mission. We long to be part of a mission. And when we settle for less, something in us cries out, That's not, it's not right, something's off. So, so when Sir Ernest Shackleton, I believe it was 1914 that he posted this ad in a paper in England, he said this, Men wanted for hazardous journey, low wages, bitter cold, long hours of darkness, safe return doubtful, honor and recognition in the event of success. I mean, he's honest. <laughs> 5,000 men said, I'll go. I mean, so many that he had to take for his 28-man crew, he had to say no to the majority of people wanting to leverage their life for something that was bigger than themselves. Do you know, I think that Jesus' invitation to his church is far more ambitious and far more dangerous than Sir Ernest Shackleton's invitation to anybody who would join him on his expedition to Antarctica. I think it's far more dangerous. I think it's far bigger. And I think it has far more threats than even complete darkness, bitter cold, and low wages have. What we're going to wrap our hearts and our minds around this morning is this, is that all successful movements, and that's what what Christianity is. It's this movement of God where he stirs in the hearts of a group of people, his mercy and his grace, where they go out into the world to make a difference. All successful movements are grounded in two things, a grand mission that overcomes imposing threats. Now, we hear this, and I think in our comfortable um, homes and beds that we get to sleep in, we think we don't want this, but I want to press on you a little bit this morning to say, I think we want it more than maybe we recognize we do. I think it may be that angst that stirs inside of many of us, that question, is there more to this life? And God's answer is, there's more for your life, yes. I think at times these threats start to sort of cloud in on us. We start to get pessimistic. We start to wonder, God, is your plan, is your mission, is your church really going to continue to push forward? Are the gates of hell really not going to be victorious over your church? And maybe you're like me, where the threats are both external, where it seems like it's difficult to be a follower of Jesus today. Now, I would add in parentheses, not compared to histor- historical Christianity, right? And definitely, and not necessarily here. It's not as difficult as, say, um, North Korea, where 30 people last week lost their life for being followers of Jesus, right? It's difficult mostly because of our apathy, if we could be honest. But 
there are definitely threats, both external and internal. And we need to know that because God has called us as a people, as a movement, to live on mission. Will you look up at me for just a second? Will you look up at me for just a second? God's mission has a church. The church does not necessarily have a mission. Okay? God's mission to reconcile all people to himself has a church. The church maybe has a mission. It's secondary, though, to we are God's mission on earth. That's an important distinction. Subtle, but I think it will shape what we do as we go to the scriptures and ask God, God, how do we become the type of people who embrace your mission, your grand mission in light of obstacles, in light of threats that press in against us? Well, Jesus talked a lot about this with his followers before he ascended to heaven. And so as we continue our study in the book of Acts today, I'm going to invite you to turn to Acts chapter 1. We're going to start in verse 4. If you were with us last week, we covered the first three verses. If you're a mathematician, at that rate, it's going to take us about a decade to cover the entire book of Acts. I promise it will be quicker than that. I also promise it will not be short. So, and we learned last week that this movement of God is founded on three things. One, it has a foundation that's forged in the past. It has a present power, a power that's available in the present, and three, it has a vision that presses towards a better future. So that's the shaping of this movement we find ourselves in as followers of Jesus. Well, Dr. Luke continues to record all that Jesus continues to do through his church in verse four and five, and it reads like this. It says, and while we were, and while staying with them, he, and he hears Jesus, ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you heard from me, for John baptized you with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Now, just a quick timeout. We are going to do a lot of work studying the Holy Spirit in the next really four weeks. And I can't wait to dive into that with you to talk about baptism of the Holy Spirit and what that looks like and how it's different from John's baptism. We're going to get there in Acts chapter 2 in a more significant way. I'm looking forward to that. But what I want to draw our attention to for our purposes this morning is the hurdle I feel like Jesus is asking them to cross and asking them to jump over this hurdle to the furtherance of his mission, the goodness of the gospel getting out. And it's this, wait, hurry up, followers of Jesus, and wait, 10 days, 10 days they wait. From the time that Jesus ascends to heaven to Pentecost, 10 days they wait. And you wonder what those conversations looked like in those 10 days? I mean, is he really going to be good on what he promised? Uh, are we really going to be, we're really going to go out into all the earth and what, what was the kingdom of God again? And is it now? And if it is now, are we in it? And if we're in it, are we really good representing? I mean, all the questions over those 10 days. And the first hurdle Jesus invites his followers to clear as they embrace and live in the mission of God is to embrace God's timing. Now, 
I don't know about you, but I am not a good waiter of tables or in life in general, period. I had the chance to practice it this week as uh, my family and I flew to California, to Southern California, to spread my mom's ashes. We took two plane flights, so my first flight was delayed about an hour and then landed in Orange County during rush hour, okay? So it's as though God's saying, just want to get you ready. Just want to get you ready to, to teach on this because there's some waiting in life, isn't there? And sometimes we go back to God and we wrestle with God. Is this really your plan? God, I'm having to wait on this job. And God, I'm having to wait on the child that's wandered away from you. And God, are you ever going to bring them back? And God, this marriage just seems like it's never going to get better. And sometimes God's answer to us is hurry up and wait. Because he does some of his best work in our life in the in-between time, doesn't he? So the psalmist will write in Psalm chapter 27, verse 14, wait for the Lord. Wait, wait, like like in a microwave, hurry up culture. What would happen if we were people that learned to wait really well? To wait on the Lord, to be strong, the psalmist writes, and to let your heart take courage. Wait for the Lord, he says. So we can be people who, we will be people who wait. The question is, will we be people who wait well. See, the early disciples, the first thing that they did in order to embrace the mission was to wait on God's timing. Are we willing to do the same thing? To wait well, to take courage, to allow our hearts to continue to engage God, to wrestle with God, to press into God, not to say, God, I'm done with this. You got to deliver now or I'm out. So 10 days they wait. I wonder what those conversations might have been like. Well, the story in Luke, Luke's narrative continues in verse 6. He says, when they'd come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? Now, just a quick time out. This is a really interesting question. It's a loaded question, scripturally. I thought, as I started in teaching the book of Acts, that I was going to teach Um, a lot of narrative and a lot of story. And what I've found as I've studied this book more and more is that it is theologically rich and dense. And the first eight verses have sort of blown me away a little bit as I've studied them. Because this is a weighty statement, both theologically, but also practically. See, Jesus was a big disappointment to the nation of Israel. I mean, so much so that they killed him. That big, even on the road to Emmaus in Luke chapter 24, um, Jesus is interacting with somebody who, who says this, we had hoped that he, Jesus, was the one to redeem Israel. Implication, he's obviously not. Well, you have to understand the context a little bit because the nation of Israel was under the thumb of the Roman Empire and they were brutal. They were really good at killing people. They did it a lot. And they did it to a lot of Jews. And so as Jewish people prayed and as Jewish people sought the scriptures, what they saw was that when the Messiah comes, the the government will be upon his shoulders, right? You could probably sing it with me. Thank you, Handel. The government will be upon his shoulders and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, and Prince of Peace. Well, 
that form of peace was not what the nation of Israel wanted. They wanted a Messiah that was going to come and was going to wipe out the Roman Empire, not just one who would conquer death, but would conquer Rome. Come on, Jesus. And to their credit, much of the Old Testament prophesied about the kingdom of God on earth with the Messiah as the earthly ruler. Well, look at how Jesus answers their question. He said to them, it's not for you to know the times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. So notice what happens, okay? Their question is, God, when will you restore Israel? And his answer is, you will go to the ends of the earth. You see what happened there? They didn't either. Their world got absolutely turned around in a second because everything they hoped for and everything they dreamed of, God said, no, that's not what's happening now. What's happening now is you are going to be my people who push forward my kingdom on this earth at this time. Hmm. So Jesus answers their question in two ways. One, he says, I don't even know the time when that's going to happen the restoration of Israel. He says, I, I don't know that. The Father alone knows that. So it's really not worth spending your time on wondering when that's going to happen. That's part of his answer. So a lot of followers of Jesus want to get tied up in, well, when is the Lord going to return? Here's the thing. When he does, you won't miss it. We promise you, you won't. Okay. So two things. He will come back, and two, you won't miss it. And until he does, you have a mission to live. You have a mission to live. So he says one thing. He says, to, or he says two things to them. First is, nobody knows the timetable, so, so, so don't worry about that as much. And two, what you longed for and what you prayed for and what you thought God was going to do is just way smaller than what he wants to do. See, you hoped for. Is nation of Israel, Hebrew people, what you hoped for was God to restore your nation. And what Jesus said is, no, my mission is way bigger than one nation. My mission is for the entire world. So don't just go to Jerusalem and don't just stay in Judea, but go to Samaria and the ends of the earth. And if you forget that command, I will graciously persecute you out of Jerusalem so that you do go into all the world. That's what happens. That's what happens. So here's the second hurdle that Jesus clears. One is he wants them to embrace his timing. And second, he wants his followers to prioritize his plan. And will you look up at me for a second? You will never meet somebody outside of the plan and grace and mercy of God. It's big enough for us all. It's big enough for us all. And so I think, and if you'll graciously allow me to press on you, I think we fall into the same trap that the early disciples did. And it's not bad to pray for our nation. It's not bad to sing a song where we say, hey, God, work and move in our city. God, work and move in our nation. You're the God of this nation. Please stir our hearts back to you. It's not bad to pray that. I think it's sin to pray only that. 
Because as followers of Jesus, before we are anything else, before we pledge allegiance to anything else, we pledge allegiance to the kingdom of God. First and foremost, we are Christians, followers of Jesus, before we're anything else. And the early followers, they wanted Jesus to do something in Israel, and he said, I long to do something in the world. Will you be a part of that? Will you be a part of that? And so I want to seek God for our city, and I'm hoping that you're journeying with us as we pray to seek God for our city. And I want God to transform our nation, I do. But may we never lose sight of the fact that we serve a big God who's interested in our nation, yes, but in all nations equally and all people groups and all languages and every color and shade on every corner of the globe. He's for them. So as we pray, let's pray big. In fact, I think it's impossible to pray bigger than the vision Jesus gives his church. Like if we just pray his vision back to him, God, would you send us into the areas that are close and the ends of the globe to bring the good news of your gospel? I don't think we're gonna go, we're never gonna be just too small. I think he invites us, dream big, because I'm a God, not just of this little corner of the globe, but of every corner of the globe. And as a people, I think we like that. I think we want that. I don't think we'd want to serve a God that was just, just said, hey, here's what I want to do. I want to transform the United States of America. I think eventually we'd start to say, well, what about everybody else? We want big vision. I was reading through some of our um, history as a nation, and I came across this quote by JFK. And he says this when they were talking about the race to space. He says, no nation which expects to be the leader of other nations can expect to stay behind in the race for space. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and to do other things, not because they're easy, but because they are hard. And everybody in America went, yes, and amen. And I'm not saying that a race to space is trivial, but I am saying that the mission of Jesus is way more significant than who can get to the moon fastest. So how do we embody this corporately as a, as a movement together, as a body of Christ, a self-fellowship church, not the building, but the people? We start to pray, God, who of our midst, who within our midst do you want to send out to every corner of the globe? Hey, my cards are on the table early on in this series. We want to raise up missionaries that will go and leave here leave this space to plant churches, to go and to serve as missionaries where the name of Jesus and the gospel is not known. We want that. So if God stirs in your heart as we talk about these things, come talk to us. We would love to get rid of you. <laughs> not because we don't like you, but because the world needs you, okay? okay? But we're praying that. We pray personally, God, how might you use my life how do I embrace your plan with the X amount of days that you give me on this earth? God, how might you work in our marriages? How might you work in our schools and our neighborhoods and on every corner of the globe through us? Please, please. Well, Luke 
continues, or I want to reiterate, we're going to camp in verse 8. This is sort of the, um, this is the outline, if you will, of the entire book of Acts. I think it's his thesis. I think it's where, it's definitely where the book goes, but I think there's a lot of weight that's placed on this one verse in this book, and he writes this, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my, what's the word? Witnesses. Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. Now, this word witnesses, um, it's used 29 times throughout the book of Acts. Many would argue that this is one of the themes of the book of Acts, God's people witnessing. It's simply what it sounds like, that they tell what they've seen and they tell what they've heard. It's like an eyewitness called to a judicial stand where he says, your honor, this is what I've seen and this is what I've heard. Jesus describes his first followers as witnesses. Do you know that that's your role and my role also? A lot of times we get caught up in, well, we got to learn all the answers. We have to know our apologetics, and I'm not knocking that. That is an absolutely essential thing. We've got to be able to answer the reason for the hope that we have. So true, so true, yes and amen. But we cannot do it at the expense of not having a story of what God's done in our own life. The very first evangelists were witnesses. This is what I saw him do. This is what I heard him say. See, Christianity is always more than an experience, but it's never less. It's always more than an experience, but it's never less. At its core base level, it's this is the way God has worked, and this is the way God has moved, and this is what I've seen him do. It's like the blind man who says, listen, I don't know who he is or what he's done. All I know is I was blind, and now I see. You can take that to the bank. That's all I know. And I think as followers of Jesus... One of the hurdles he invites us to cross is not only to embrace God's timing and prioritize God's plan, but to trust in his method. So let me ask you, do you you know your story? Have you spent enough time soaking in the grace and mercy of God to the point where it starts to get out of you? We, We have this saying around here, Um, when the gospel gets in us, it always gets out of us. So if it doesn't get out, the implication is that it probably hasn't taken root within. Probably hasn't taken root within. Um, Listen to the way that Peter says it in one of his very first post-resurrection sermons. He says, this Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. Within months of his raising from the dead, he's going, hey, he walked out of the grave, and and you all know it. That's his point in that. We witnessed it. We saw it. We heard it. We touched him. So how have you seen the work of Jesus in your life? How has he he touched you? Paul's going to invite you in the book of 2 Corinthians to picture your calling like this, that we're, we are ambassadors for Christ. We are, we are um, his and sent by him. As though God was making his appeal through us. Have you ever gone to work and thought that? Have you ever walked into the doors of your home and interacted with your family in a way that reflected, God just might be making his appeal through me. 
This isn't a prideful thing, friends. This is, this is simply an, an absolutely humbling thing. God, I can't believe you would use somebody like me. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. He says, that's the message we carry, is that we were far off and he brought us near. We were dead and he made us alive. It's not that we had enough energy and enough good will and enough good deeds in order to climb up to him, but it's that he had enough grace to climb down to us. That's the gospel. And so he goes on to say it, for our sake, he, Jesus, made, or God made him to be sin who knew no sin that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Friends, my hope is that it absolutely soaks in and convicts your heart and your soul to where you know that you have been made the righteousness of God. As in past tense, done, signs, sealed, delivered, he walked out of the grave. There's no sin left for him to punish anymore. Jesus took it all. So as we go, our method is we can't believe we're the redeemed. Like we didn't deserve this. We didn't earn it. It's simply God's grace and his mercy showered down upon us. And when that message sinks into our soul, it can't help but get out of our mouth. I love the way that the great preacher Charles Spurgeon put it when he said this. If Jesus is precious to you, you will not be able to keep your good news to yourself. You'll be whispering it in your children's ears. You'll be telling it to your husband. You'll be earnestly imparting it to your friend. Without the charms of eloquence, you will be more than eloquent. Your heart will speak. Your eyes will flash as you talk of his sweet love. Man, I don't know about you, but I make a ton of excuses, right, for why I can't do this, right? right? I've, I've been to seminary. I have my MDiv, but I just don't know enough, right? There's, I'm sure there's a, another book that I, I need to read. Uh, evangelism's not my gift. Isn't that the Christian cop-out above all else? It's our calling. Well, it's not gifted. Well, we're going to read about that in a second, so. Or I witness with my life. I don't have the time. Or talking with other people makes me feel weird, which is a problem in general, but evangelism has often been described as two uncomfortable people talking. The point is, when the love of God gets in us in a way that transforms our very identity, excuses start to sort of fade into the background because we're not trying to convince somebody. We're witnessing about someone. This is who I know. And this is what he's done. And the offer's on the table for you. Well, Luke continues. He says, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses. As I've interacted with this text and as I've thought about the early church and church history and we talked about that last week, this movement of God that started with this band of followers who were uneducated, ordinary guys who got the tar beat out of them for following Jesus. 
I started to wonder, what is it that has continued this movement throughout the course of history, and why does it continue to not just uh, exist but flourish today? Why is that? Well, it's because Jesus keeps his promises. And so he says, you will receive, after you wait, you will receive power, and the Holy Spirit will come upon you. See, he answers the question, how is the movement going to be sustained? His spirit is the fuel, the energy, the power behind the expansion of the gospel as his people step out. That word, that word um, power, that word power there is the Greek word dynamin. Um, it doesn't take a genius to, to sort of track and know our English word dynamite is taken from that Greek word. So Jesus is saying, when you embrace the Jesus mission and are filled with Jesus' spirit, it's like taking dynamite into a world where hard hearts become renewed, where dead lives are raised to life, where people without meaning are infused with mission. And so not only do we get the chance to embrace God's timing and prioritize God's plan and trust his method of being witnesses, but we also are invited to rely on his power. To rely on his power. I'm sure that the early disciples heard power and thought, yes and amen, finally. But then they heard power to be witnesses. Power to tell. So, so there's a lot of debates about, well, why don't we see the Holy Spirit at work in the United States like they see in other places? And why doesn't God seem as powerful here as he does over there? And why doesn't God show up like fill in the blank? Let me propose something to you. I wonder if the reason we don't see the Spirit's power moving is because we haven't embraced the Spirit's mission. So he says, you will receive power. The Holy Spirit will come upon you, will indwell you, and you will be my witnesses. So power in order to complete the mission. We want power for power's sake. We want signs for signs sake. We want wonders for wonders sake. And God says, I give those when they're in line with my mission. I show up when you take up the baton that I long for the church to run with. So I wonder if God wants to stir something up in us. Or if we long for the Spirit's power, maybe we need to go back to the Spirit's mission. That on every corner of the globe, people would know the glorious, beautiful name of Jesus. That they would worship him. That they would know that their sins are forgiven. That they stand before the throne of God, holy and spotless and blameless. Because of his blood, after they put their faith in him, right then... And that we would be people who would really re-embrace that mission. And see, here's the thing. It doesn't take really special people. I mean, all these disciples were extremely ordinary. And that's generous. It's generous. They're ordinary guys with an extraordinary power that lived in them with an unbelievable mission. May every person know the goodness and glory of Jesus Christ. So they just simply lived out what Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. We have this treasure, this gospel in jars of clay. 
to show that this all-surpassing power is not from us, but is from God. God loves using very ordinary people to make much of his name. Because then we don't get confused that it's somebody else and not him. But see, here's the thing. A lot of us settle for our own mission. And when we settle for our own mission, we have our own power. That's it. But I think Jesus wants to reinvite us to his mission with his power. See, in every chapter of the book of Acts, you get the sense that the church is just is following the Spirit or being dragged by the Spirit. Depends on the chapter. That the Spirit's the real mover. He's working in people's lives. He's the one changing. He's moving them in this direction. And followers of Jesus are simply yielded to him. The book is called The Acts of the Apostles, but I think it could easily be called The Acts of the Holy Spirit. He's the one on the move. Well, Luke concludes this section by talking about the ascension, and he says this. And when he'd said these things, he being Jesus, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. Um, So we've been around church a long time. We may have heard the stories, and we read something like that and go, yeah, of course. No, that's weird. That's, that's crazy, right? And, and I don't know that Jesus necessarily talked about this with his disciples. So you wonder if as he's ascending, he's going, oh, my bad about not running this by you. You didn't get the, the cross and the resurrection beforehand, so I thought I'd just spring this one on you. Peace out, see you later, Jesus out, right? I mean, what do you, how do you explain as he's going up on a cloud they took him out of sight and while they while they were gazing sorry and while they were gazing into heaven as he went behold two men stood by them in white robes and said men of galilee why do you stand looking into heaven now these are angels so it's hard for me to say it but i'm going to say it that's a ridiculous question (laughs) somebody just did somebody just levitated up into heaven and disappeared that's what they're looking for hey jesus was here and now he's not any ideas They said, this Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go. So we said it before. How do we know we're still called to live the mission God gave to his church? Well, he hasn't come back yet. And a lot of people, I think like the early disciples, we want to stare up into heaven. And we want to discuss, and we want to get our timetables out, and we want to try to nail down when Jesus might just return. And the early church, the angels said to these early disciples, hey, 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 what are you looking at? I thought he told you to go do something. They're like, hurry up and wait. But you don't need to look up into the sky. See, I think God would say this to us as we close our time together this morning. The calling of followers of Jesus is not to gaze up into the sky, but to go into all the world. We make a lot of secondary issues primary. I think we spend a lot of time dividing our mission between a lot of things, but Jesus says, no, the mission is to go 
and to make disciples and to be my witnesses and that my name would be made great on every corner of the globe. Yes, pray for your nation. Yes, pray for your city. Yes, pray for your family. But please don't miss praying for every nation and people group that God has under the sun that they might know the name of Jesus. Please don't write off maybe going to them someday because that's part of his mission for some in this room. I'm convinced of it. And as you go, he says, no, that my wind, my power, my energy is at your back to push you forward. And hey, 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 not every one of us is going to go somewhere else. But if you're a follower of Jesus, you have a mission to live. So the fact that you're not going overseas or whatever does not get you off the hook, friends. You have a mission to live. You have hope to give. You have love to embody to the people around you. And I pray, I pray that we would embrace this mission fully, that we would be his witnesses in Littleton, in Centennial, in Colorado, in the United States, and to the ends of the earth. Would you pray with me? This audio is from South Fellowship Church. Feel free to make copies of this message, but please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way. For more information about South Fellowship, please visit us at southfellowship.org.